Hello and welcome to the EMJ podcast with me, your host, Dr. Jonathan Sakia. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Hugo Davila, who's a, a board-certified urologist practicing in Vero Beach, Florida. So we're, we're very grateful for him getting up early to do this. Uh, Vero Beach, for those of you who don't know, is kind of halfway between Orlando and Miami on the east coast of, uh, of the Florida panhandle. Dr. Davila is also clinical assistant professor at Florida State University College of Medicine, and that's in Tallahassee in the northwest corner of Florida, and it's, it's also the capital city of that state. Dr. Davila graduated from the Central University of Venezuela, having been born in Caracas. He carried out research work at UCLA in Los Angeles and Cornell in New York, and completed medical school and his surgery and urology training at the University of South Florida and the Moffitt Cancer Center, which is in Tampa, Florida. By happenstance, and I've, I've been to Tampa, I love that area. By happenstance, I learned the day before prepping for this podcast that Terry Eugene Bollea, most people won't know that name, but they, they'll know him by his stage name, if you will, as the internationally known wrestler Hulk Hogan. He is an alumnus of, uh, of, of that university in Tampa. There you go. So having completed urology fellowships, Hugo now practices at Florida Healthcare Specialists and Cleveland Clinic Indian River Hospital. His research interests previously included fibrosis, aging, and nitric oxide, and he has publications in prestigious journals in that area. He also became interested in evaluating robotic surgical techniques and intraoperative imaging for the correction of pelvic organ prolapse and has several publications covering these topics. We're going to dig down into that. Dr. Davila has introduced new techniques and we're going to discuss those, including work that was presented at the European Association of Urology. He's a special interest in female pelvic medicine and reconstructive surgery. And he reviews for several prestigious journals. He's a very active member at the, uh, the American Urological Association and the Society of Robotic Surgery, amongst others. He's clearly a busy chap. Hugo has presented multiple videos, podium papers, and posters at prestigious international meetings. And when not solving complex urological issues, Hugo is a keen runner, loves soccer, or football as we call it over here, travel, computers, music, and big surprises, we shall hear, technology. So, Dr. Hugo Davila, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much, Jonathan, for this kind introduction and for the invitation as well. Well, we're, thr we're thrilled to have you. I, I love having people on who are living full and rich lives and who are doing good in the world. And that's certainly, you certainly tick all those boxes, Hugo. I love origin stories. What what took you into medicine, then urology, and specifically your interest in the female pelvic floor and any other urologic issues? What drove you? Well, that's a great question. So uh, certainly I was born in a family of physicians. My grandfather was a nephrologist. My dad is a urologist. And uh, being a family member of physicians, it's impossible not to be attracted to this field, or you can either love it or hate it. And uh, why do I say that is because you listen to your dad talking to their patients every day, every morning. I remember when I was uh, younger and I was going to the hospital on Saturday and wait for my dad in the cafeteria with my sister. I remember, you know, uh, after going to a restaurant, going back to the hospital because my dad needed to see a, a patient. So 
if you start questioning what is my dad doing that we spend so much time in this place and and uh and as slowly as i was growing i i keep asking that question and uh, finally it was so intriguing that I decide to enroll into med school. I, I talked with my grandfather back then, he was alive, and uh, my dad, and they told me that it's a great career and a great profession, and I, I certainly saw that uh, during my life. And I said, okay, I will, I will take this uh, uh, chapter in my life and see what happened. I got into med school without knowing what a specialty I really wanted, you know, uh, the third year in, in Venezuela, the med school is about six and a half year. Uh, and then you have to give one more year for the government. So it's seven and a half year. So you start doing your clinical rotation by the uh, third year. And then by then I start looking into different specialties. And, and I remember my dad, he has never been one of those fathers that impose anything on you. So he he has a meeting in a urology meeting at the AUA, 1997 in San Diego, California. Of course, being a, a 21 years old, and my dad tell me, hey, Hugo, you want to come with me to the American Urology Association meeting in San Diego? I immediately say yes. And um, so I got into the plane, flew to San Diego, and I remember the next day going to the convention center. And uh, I, as soon as I got into the convention center, I saw this exhibit hall full of, uh, of a company technology. And I was speechless. I remember stopping and just seeing at the exhibit hall and I asked my dad, what is this? And my dad looked at me and say, well, this is all the technology that we use in the OR in our office. Uh, it was all the big name companies. And I say, what do you mean? And say, yeah. So uh, as a surgeons, we do need technology. And this is what the technology that we use. And I, I, at that moment, I say, I want to be a urologist the rest of my life because I loved <laughs> how old were you? How, how old were you at the time, Hugo? I was 21. I was 21 years old. And um, so I remember that uh, San Diego meeting, I I spent all, I think, the four days that we were there and you know, five days in the exhibit hall, I just walking around and seeing all the, the technology. And I say, I want to do this for a living. I, I really want to be part of technology. I love so much technology that I want to be that use that to uh, has a positive impact in, 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 in my patients. And of course, urology allowed you to do that. I make my decision to become a urologist. And I, when I was doing my training at the University of South Florida, of course, you do different rotations. And I immediately was attracted by any, any field in urology that use technology. That's what I want. And, and I start, you know, moving into uh, the robotic surgery, the endourology, and um, and slowly start finding my pathway into different topics, and took me years. Uh, you know, as you mentioned in the introduction, I did a lot of things, and I think it's so important. I always tell med students and everybody that want to do this for a living is find your pathway by sampling everything, 
And, uh, you know, once you sample everything, you know what you like. And and that took me to what I'm doing today. Still working with a lot of technology, robotic surgery, um, helping my patients. And I found that I like the, the pelvic floor uh, surgery, and that's what I'm doing. Yeah, I think uh, just a couple of things. I'm sitting here grinning because I, I said in the introduction that you you clearly like technology. I was not a practicing urologist. I did general and colorectal surgery, but I also adore technology and the way that it solves problems. And there's that aha moment when an engineer and a surgeon collaborate to help bring a new technology to market that can help solve, you know, make a person's life better. I was at that meeting in San Diego 25 years ago. I was there for some meetings with collaborators on an, on another project. So how bizarre that we were in the same room. But yeah, I, I'm going to come on to the whole pelvic floor stuff in a bit. But but thank you for that. So I, again, when I prepare for these podcasts, I, I just think about things that I've come across and the opportunity to ask questions to experts. So this might seem a little bit off topic, but stick with me. So I remember seeing one of my favorite talk shows, a chap named Graham Norton, and he's very funny. And he was interviewing the actor Hugh Jackman. And the story goes that Jackman was filming one of the Wolverine movies. It's one of these uh, fantastical movies. And specifically, it was a nude segment. And for a giggle, the assistant director had every woman on set surprise Hugh Jackman all holding up $5 bills. Remember, he's naked when he ran around a corner for this scene. Jackman instinctively tried to cover up his nether regions, forgetting that he was wearing the character Wolverine's 10-inch metal claws, and he cut himself in the process. He said he apparently only slashed his inner thigh, but it was enough to scare him as to what might have happened. And that made me think about Francois Gigot de la Peronie, a founding member of the French Royal Academy of Surgery, who in 1743 described the disease that bears his name. And in going through your CV, I saw that you've written and presented quite a bit about Peyronie's disease. So for the benefit of those listening who are not familiar with the disease, please give us a brief description and then tell us where things stand today with treatments, because it's something that I've, God, I remember reading about it decades ago. Anything new to report? Well, you know, Peyronie's disease is a curvature of the penis. So when you have an erection, this curvature can be severe enough to be, you know, 40 degree, 45 degree, 90 degree. It can be to the left. You can be a lefty or you can be a right, you know. <laughs> I, shouldn't, I shouldn't laugh. That's terrible. But, laugh. you know, it can go everywhere. You know, it can be up, down. And sometimes it's so severe that it can affect uh, the ability to have intercourse or to maintain an erection, or it can be painful for for your partner. So back in, in that process of sampling everything uh, within the urology field, I, I was lucky enough to work at UCLA. And um, I remember that we were looking for an animal model. So we start reading about you know what is the most common cause of Peyronie's disease, and we found a trauma. So when you have trauma during intercourse, you know, it can be a trauma that you remember because it was painful enough or maybe, you know, minor trauma over the years during having intercourse can create a scar tissue 
in the tunica albuginea, which is a, a very thin layer that's, you know, cover the penis uh, under the skin. And when you have a scar tissue there, you are creating a weakness, a point of weakness. And that when you have an erection, that point of weakness is not able to keep it straight. And then you have the curvature. Over many years, we have tried many different treatments, but finally, I will say that about four years ago, four or five years ago, uh, we have the in the United States the first FDA-approved treatment, which is Cyaflex, um, is is an injection that we give to our patients. It's multiple injections over a period of time. And uh, the main idea is to break the collagen and to induce this scar to to renew. I, imagine like uh, you have a keloid, and then by injecting, you're trying to overcome the keloid and make it uh, build with normal collagen. And and that's what we're trying to do with this injection. Uh, but it's very common, you know. It happened about four percent in uh, in patients. The incidence is is very common in in Caucasian white men, and uh, sometimes is uh, is associated with Dupuy train contractor as well, which is a contractor of the hand. So if you have that problem, it's very important that you bring that to the attention of your physician, and then they can refer you to a specialist and offer you uh, the treatment. So uh, it's interesting. I had no idea that it was that common. And, you know, um, a number of diseases have gained more exposure, if you'll forgive the allusion, uh, because a celebrity speaks out about it and raises awareness and suddenly it becomes okay to talk about it. And I wonder if Hugh Jackman might have, although seemingly hasn't got that problem, by talking about it and making making it okay to talk about such things, um, that more men might seek help. And now it's great to know there's something out there. So moving on, I was very fortunate to be involved in the early days of laparoscopy and robotics. And I want to, I want to dig into what you've been up to. Please give everyone who's not familiar an overview of both of these modalities and tell us about how widely they're now used internationally in your specialty. And what are the most common guess what are the most common and what are the most complex procedures done both with minimal invasion and robotics? Yeah, well, robotic surgery. So I finished med school, Jonathan, back in 1999. Okay, when I finished med school... Stop making me feel old. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, when I finished med school, I, you know, if you want to have surgery, if you want to do surgery, you have to get your hands inside the abdomen of the patients. You have to to be, um, you know, close to the patients. And slowly we have seen that now, you know, we are not even, um, you know, putting our hands inside the abdomen of the patients. We are in what we call a console. So this is a console that is in the room. But we are handling four arms and these four arms. So you are a surgeon with two arms. Now you're becoming a surgeon of four arms. Okay. And these robotic system, which is, there are many companies, but the one that we use here in, in, in the United States uh, is the Da Vinci. And then, um, so is a forearm um, robotic system. So in one, you can hold the camera and the other three, you use different instruments that you need to do the surgery and the dissection. Not only that, that you became you became a forearm surgeon, but now 
you have 10 time magnification vision. So your vision is better. Okay. So not only that, but you can see if you inject something inside the patient, you know, you can uh, see uh, a green light that highlight the blood vessels. So you can see through the tissue. So it's truly, you become a super. So that's, uh, sorry to interrupt you, uh, Hugo, endosine in green. Say that again? Yeah, endosine in green. That is correct. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And then, um, so you become a super uh, hero. It's like a, you know, forearm magnification, and um, so it's truly magnifying your senses and your, uh, you know, your ability to perform the surgery. Of course, you're still doing the surgery. You still need to have the the training, the skills, the understanding, and the experience of doing the surgery. The robotic system is not going to overcome that problem. You need the learning curve, and uh, that's a reason. But once you have that learning curve and that training, so certainly it, it, it allows you to do uh, more um, minimally invasive surgeries and more complex cases with this technology. And therefore, I think that nowadays in the United States, about 80, 88% of prostatectomies are done with the da Vinci. So, of course, I, I do a lot of presentations in, in South America, Latin American, and uh, I go a lot as well to Europe, and there is not the same in other part of the world. So the, the, the robotic system and the robotic market is in the infancy. So I think it's only 3 or 4% of the world market. So I think that what we are seeing is just the beginning of a massive massive increase of technology companies getting into decreasing the cost and uh and certainly it's not going to go away it's going to stay with us and as a surgeon we need to make sure that we know how to handle that technology well i'm going to come on to talk about prostatectomy in a little bit and and push your buttons a little bit a little bit uh just for fun um and i am believing you know we were talking just a bit earlier about how technology exists to serve the patients, not the other way around. The, the technology companies will thrive if they produce something that makes an unmet clinical need solvable and improves the lot of patients, right? So I'm, I'm sure you'd agree with me, but I just want to have a bit of fun with you. So let's move on to one of your areas of interest, pelvic organ prolapse. It's a condition which can be incredibly upsetting for women who suffer with it. And it's not just the disease, it's the dis-ease, the social uh, trauma it causes. And a few years back, many of the meshes that were being used to affect repairs were withdrawn from the market. So just as a perspective, doing colorectal and laparoscopic work, I used to do rectopexy uh, for rectal prolapse, uh, and I used mesh. And I frankly never had a problem that I'm aware of. Certainly patients didn't, maybe they had more sense than to come back to me if they had a problem, but I never had a problem with it. And, um, I'd love your perspective on, I guess, talk about the impact, first of all, of, of, of uh, pelvic prolapse for women as our population ages and what effect the withdrawal of mesh had on your practice and the women that you serve. Yeah, so pelvic organ prolapse is a very common problem and nobody talk about it, okay? Everybody like to talk about prostate cancer, breast cancer, but uh, as you mentioned before, Peyronie's disease, pelvic organ prolapse are these type of disease that 
when you go to a party and you sit next to somebody, you can say, hey, I have a stain in my heart. I have diabetes. I'm, you know, I am a survivor from prostate cancer, breast cancer. Nobody want to say, hey, I have something coming out of the vagina and a pelvic organ prolapse. It's a very discreet and private problem. So that's number one. But about 4 million of women are diagnosed of pelvic organ prolapse in, in the United States. And, and about 3 3.1 million that can be handled without any surgery, okay? And about 800,000 to 900,000, you know, thousand patients need surgery. So a lot of surgeries per year that we're doing in the United States to fix this problem. Uh, the FDA uh, um, finally came to the conclusion that uh, we cannot offer any transvaginal mesh to correct the pelvic organ prolapse. And that was based on many years of reviewing complication with transvaginal mesh for pelvic organ prolapse. However, the FDA has reviewed and has done, doesn't have any problem with a mesh that you can play uh, through the abdomen. Is we do a surgery that is is called robotic sacrocopopexy, which is basically pulling up the prolapse and then um, with a mesh and attach that to the sacral promontory. But we do in the, an abdominal approach. Okay, we're not going through the vagina, so that is a very important difference that you need to understand. And the complications related with transvaginal mesh were so high that the FDA in the United States decided to stop doing that, okay? However, if your physician is offering a surgery, um, then the transabdominal approach is still the best and the gold standard to do that, okay? Now, there is another transvaginal mesh that here in the United States we don't have any problem, which is the mesh that we place transvaginally to correct the stress urinary incontinence. So that's where it started getting confusing there. So if you have a stress urinary incontinence, meaning that you, when you cough, sneeze, or laugh, you are leaking, then the FDA is okay to place a mesh under the urethra and correct that problem, okay? So the only one that we cannot offer anymore in the United States is the transvaginal mesh to correct pelvic organ prolapse. Okay, well that's that that's that's very helpful. I um I just want to go back to what you said about the millions of women who are not treated surgically. That would be what with pelvic floor exercises, um, pessaries, and such like. Correct. So and I like to give that example always because it is very important to know that as a physician we have a responsibility to always offer the less invasive approach 100%. to our patients. Prima non nocere, firstly do no harm, right? Um, Correct. Correct. So everybody that go to med school, we understand that we should always start with the less invasive. And what is the less invasive approach is, well, as you mentioned, the pelvic floor muscle treatment, and there is a, you know, it's a good 40 to 60% success on, on that uh, in terms of pelvic organ prolapse. The vaginal pessary, I usually recommend that in somebody who is not sexually active. 
and then you know and then you you find there is is different shape type of pessaries that you can put inside the vagina and that would lift the the the, the pelvic organ prolapse and and as you see about 80 88% of the female uh, of the patients are treated that way. So that is the important message here is even that we offer surgery, it should never be the first step. And, and anyone doing any work with the electrical stimulation of the pelvic floor? Is that being done? Oh, yeah. I mean, the, as a part of the physical therapy that you that we do for our patients, you stimulate the pelvic floor. And these muscles, you know, that we have in the pelvic floor, the levator, any muscles are so important to improve that. Actually, there's a paper that say that by doing this stimulation of the pelvic floor, you can elevate or the bladder three to five millimeters and as well the rectum three to five millimeters up just by increasing that muscle tone that sometimes, you know, patients, they don't have it. So, uh, and is you know, three to five millimeters is a lot when you see it. That's, that's fascinating. Well, let's continue on that theme. Uh, given your interest in robotic techniques and intraoperative imaging for the correction of prolapse, you recently had some publications in the Journal of Robotic Surgery and Urology Gold Journal uh, by EMJ, uh, who produced this podcast, uh, just in the interest of disclosure. And you recently introduced um, a robotic laparoscopic single site approach using native tissue for apical prolapse and describe repair without using mesh. And we've just been talking about mesh in prolapses. Uh, and that was, at, I think, the EUA, the European Association of Urology. Talk us through some of the details that you feel are, are germane here. Correct. So as we mentioned, a lot of patients come to the practice, uh, you know, saying, Dr. Davila, I don't want any mesh, period. And then you, you have to discuss with them the, the outcome of using mesh and not mesh. So we know then when we are giving the support with mesh, the long-term success is about 90%. So 90% of patients at five years will still not have any pelvic organ prolapse after surgery. However, when we don't provide the mesh, the, the failure rate can be as high as 40% at five years. So, so you need to understand that if we don't use mesh because you say, I don't want to have, we have options for you, but the long-term outcome may not be the best. And before you make a decision, you need to know those numbers. Number two, we, in, 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 in the pursuing of, of trying to provide uh, many options to our patients, so we look into a uh, non-mesh surgery for to correct pelvic organ prolapse and as well, uh, you know, we did it single side, which is, you know, you only remember when we were talking about four arms and, you know, so we are using three arms in this approach through one hole. Okay. So one can, one arm is holding the camera and the other two are using the instrument and we're going through one tiny hole, which is about two centimeters in diameter. So is is cosmetically is is very in, less is the less invasive approach that you can have if in this time if this type uh, of surgery which is not related to cancer i think is a great option and uh, we did what we call a 
uterosacral ligament uh, suspension. So we did multiple sutures and trying to reinforce the ligament that is not holding the organ anymore. And then, um, at, at, you know, at one year, the success rate was about 80 85%, you know, and then slowly when we see a two-year that we haven't published that data yet and three-year, it started decreasing to 70% success. So as we see, when we are not using mesh, we are not able to hold that organ uh, long-term. So, and you may need a second surgery later on in life or you may need a vaginal pessary later on if you fail that surgery. I mean, it shouldn't be a surprise. You're dealing with tissue that has been stretched, is avascular, is fatty, is, you know, it's like any of the um, the, the diseases, uh, musculoskeletal diseases of aging, rotator cuff, abdominal wall hernias, whatever it might be. So it's no surprise, but, but thank you for that. And I'm sure that you'll continue in that vein to find the right solution. So I want to switch topics. We mentioned prostate cancer a little earlier. It's very clear from your publications and speaking to you that you're a very thoughtful surgeon and, and apply critical thinking to what you do clinically. And I know that prostate cancer isn't your main thing or the main thrust of our chat, but you know, I, I, want, I want to get your opinion because the widely held view is that prostate cancer resection is now so exact that impotence and incontinence of sequelae don't happen. I actually, I'm not going to say which institution, but I went with a friend of mine when he was diagnosed for a consultation, and I heard the surgeon tell him that there was zero chance he would be have any degree of impotence or incontinence afterwards. And I raised an eyebrow. And I have American friends who are post-prostatectomy, and have been done at top places and are most certainly experiencing symptoms. They're grateful to be alive, they understood the risks, but they have problems. So what's the true incidence, the true incidence from your perspective of these very, very significant post-surgery complications in the USA? And I don't well, want to get you into trouble, Hugo, with your colleagues. No, no, Jonathan. have an obligation to be honest to people, right? Absolutely. I think we, we have an obligation to be honest with our patients, and that's actually a great question. So I always say to my friends, my family, that when you go to a surgeon and they tell you there's a 0% chance of having any complication, find another surgeon. It's not being honest, you know, so you need to be honest with your patient. This is not about ego. This is not about showing if you are the best surgeon in the world. This is about being honest with your patient. So, and yes, when you're doing prostatectomies, there's always a possibility of having incontinence, which is, you know, these patients after a prostatectomy, when they're playing golf, tennis, coughing, sneezing, they're, they're leaking. And um, so the, the many papers refer about maybe about two to five percent uh, incidence of urinary incontinence. Others go to twenty five percent. So when you have that high range, that is telling me that is highly dependable of who is doing the surgery. So if you go to a low volume surgeon, so who only do few prostatectomies a, a year, so maybe those complications will be higher. So if you go to a high volume surgeon, maybe that complication will be lowered. Okay. And um, so, but certainly we can say that between two to 5% of patients will be affected by a stress urinary incontinence after a prostatectomy. And you may have to use a pad or two pads 
or sometimes patients when they get older. So they had a prostatectomy when they were 65, and now that they are 80, they have to wear a pull-ups. And sometimes I see those patients in my practice, okay? So then erectile dysfunction or ED, that's an important topic. So every man that go for a prostatectomy, that's the number one question. Say, am I going to be able to have erections? So again, it depends on the surgeon. So the surgeon who is doing the surgery is highly related to the outcome. So there are publications that say that if you have, let's say, you know, from 1 to 10, and 10 is the best erection of your life when you were 20 years old in high school or on college, you know, and um, so now when you are 60, the erection is maybe around 8 or 7. So the probability that you ke- you keep that A or 7 is about 80%. But the probability that that A or 7 will go to a 5 is about maybe 25% or 30%, but it depends on the surgeon. So if the surgeon has a high-volume surgeon and robotic surgery, as I mentioned before, is has a 10-time magnification, so the dissection close to the nerve is is significantly better than when you do a, a an open prostatectomy. Then um, the the possibility that you preserving the erectile function increase, but it certainly is not zero percent. So if I I strongly disagree with that statement. Yeah, I think that's it's very rational and very appropriate, and it I, it's it's also a function of of someone's age and the kind of life that they're living and our patients ought to be empowered to make the best decision for them um at that stage of their life so you know the guy's name is ladies and gentlemen the guy's name is hugo davila right so if you're in florida he's the guy that you want to be talking to so a follow-on question hugo you talked about the penetration of robotic prostatectomy outside the United States is lower. Um, Might I challenge whether that's due to availability of the technology, desire to use the technology, or for prostate cancer, more of a wait and see approach, which has taken, for instance, in my old country, in the United Kingdom. What do do you think about that? Is that justified? Is it legitimate? Yeah, you know, I think about 25% of my practice is on active surveillance. So active surveillance is different to watchful waiting, okay? So active surveillance is that patient that is, has a diagnosis of prostate cancer, but is, uh, is not aggressive, is low volume. So we have a number for that, and that is usually a Gleason 6. And uh, what it, you know, that means is it's not aggressive. And then low volume mean if I did uh, 14 core biopsies around your prostate, only... Uh, one or two came back positive for prostate cancer. So that patient has one option, which is do nothing, okay? But what that means is not that you're going to never come back to my office. What that means is I will continue seeing you every six months with a total PSA, and I will repeat a second biopsy in a year. Why? Because the second biopsy has a 30% probability that will come a little different and more aggressive. About 70% of the time, the second biopsy will confirm the first. 
and uh, depending on how old you are, maybe that could be the last biopsy, you know? So, but yes, active surveillance is an option and you have to be part of the conversation, but it's not for every patient with prostate cancer. Yeah, I experienced this with my late dad. Um, and, you know, so he passed, God, it's astonishing. It's nearly 25 years ago. Just doesn't seem possible. But um, he died with prostate cancer, not from prostate cancer. And the very good urologist that he saw in London um, very kindly explained that that was not his major issue and it wasn't something they were going to be bothering him with or even medicating him for and ruining his quality of life. Again, it's so lovely to hear someone who is so rational. So it's sort of a linear continuation of this conversation. A number of years back, you won a research grant to do some work with sildenafil and you've got a bunch of publications in that area. And for, you know, there's a whole range of compounds now to treat erectile dysfunction. I, I've got some concern about the way these drugs are being used. They're available in many places over the counter. And a man who first experiences issues, to my mind, ought to be going to see a doctor because this might be the harbinger of cardiovascular disease. It might be the harbinger of endocrine disease, diabetes or hypothyroidism or neurological disease, you know, multiple sclerosis could be the first sign, or psychological issues or other etiologies, rather than just buying medications. What, what are your thoughts about that as a urologist? Absolutely agree with you. I mean, there is many papers that support that ED may precede uh, coronary artery disease by three to five years. So that means that three years before you have a heart problem, you will start suffering from erectile dysfunction. So that is, that is important to know. So I can use these sign of blood flow to the penis as a proxy for blood flow to the heart. And I can do these three or five years before that happened. That, you know, seeing this is actually looking into the future. Into, so this is, as a physician, is extremely important for us. So, and I always tell my patient, this is not something to stay quiet about it. You need to, when you have ED, you need to tell your physicians because there are many scientific evidence that we need to do something about you, okay? Of course, as you know, in 1998, um, one of the big companies have these uh, drug that was created actually for angina, you know, for chest yes. pain. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You yeah. know, and then um, so they were doing the clinical trial, and then you know they they were not seeing any benefit on on the on the angina uh, outcome, and then they start requesting all the patients, okay, give me the medications back, and then some of the patients start saying, I never had a, this is the best erection that I have in my life. And uh, and at the same time, at the same time, Doctor Ignaro at UCLA started, uh, you know, finding the nitric oxide. And I was lucky enough yes. to work with Doctor Jacob Rafer, who was part of that team that helped uh, Doctor Ignaro to find the nitric oxide. And we found that you know, not only you have uh, nitric oxide, but you have different type of nitric oxide, endothelial. And the endothelial, it dilates the blood vessels that go to the penis and therefore it can be selected based on the phosphodiesterase that you are using and working. And he ended up winning the Nobel Prize for such a yeah. novel, 
you know, discovered. And uh, that opened an avenue to treat ED with a medication. And uh, But the reality, what that medication is doing is increasing the nitric oxide. And then we have seen, as you mentioned in your question, that by increasing the nitric oxide, you are not only increasing the blood flow, but you can as well, you know, decrease fibrosis. You can delay aging in, in the tissue. So we did different, different uh, research and we found the benefits of the nitric oxide is endless. And that is the reason that uh, Dr. Ignaro got the Nobel Prize, because the impact of that finding was uh, to the point that we're still working and is relevant to continue working on nitric oxide. And um, another thing that you mentioned is you have to be careful what you find over the counter. I always tell my patients, um, what is what you find over the counter it doesn't go here in the U- United States, we have the FDA. So if you have a company with a product and this company is claiming X, the FDA will say, okay, you have to do clinical trials. And those clinical trials need to prove your claim. And a board will review those claims and you will be granted or not. But when you sell over the counter, you don't have to prove any claim. And there is something that we call the placebo effect, which is can be as high as 35%. If I tell you, if you take this pill, this is what you're going to feel, you, 35% of my patients will feel the benefit without with taking a sugar pill. So the over-the-counter, it, that doesn't mean that is 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 not a, a good product. It's only that scientifically has not been proven and sometimes can be based on placebo effect. So be careful. That's absolutely, absolutely fascinating. I want you to give me some bullet points for the next couple of questions. Which are there some, I don't know, some new advances in urology or things that are just around the corner that excite you? One, two, three. What, what's, what's on the horizon? Or what's just over the horizon? Correct. So we'll continue seeing uh, more robotic companies getting into the robotics uh, market. Okay. By doing that, the cost of robotic surgery is going to decrease. We'll continue seeing uh, more artificial intelligence in our world feel an example of that there are some papers looking at how to read an mri of the prostate and as well how to read a biopsy of the prostate uh, and they compare that with artificial intelligence and artificial intelligence is performing as good or sometimes even better than a pathologist or radiologist so we're going to see in the following years artificial intelligence reading our biopsies and mri of the prostate as well And of course, with the COVID-19, we have seen that patients prefer to stay in in the office rather than going to the hospital. So a lot of companies are providing more products and technologies for office care. And we'll continue seeing many more treatment focused in the office uh, rather than in the hospital. And that's going to translate as well in a decrease of the cost of taking care of patients in the United States, hopefully. So you mentioned at the beginning, as we go full circle, Hugo, you mentioned about, you know, having a father who was a nephrologist, a urologist. Yep. Yeah. Okay. And so let's, let's pay it forwards. What would you say to a medical student or resident out there who's considering a career in urology? 
what are the reasons to follow that career course you come across as a guy who loves what he does so what are the reasons or not to i guess to do this i always say to all the med students that rotate with us this is the best time to be a physician let me repeat this one more time because you sometimes you run into frustrated physicians that tell everybody don't be a physician i have to say this is the best time to be a physician why because i have never seen in the when i read with my with my own family my father my grandfather but what we are doing to our patients nowadays let me give you an idea as when I start, when I finished med school in 1999, there was not a robotic system. Now there are many. When I when I was doing my training at USF, you only have five or six treatment for cancer. Now is endless to the point that immunotherapy is part of the many treatments that we're giving, and every month is a new treatment for cancer. So. Um, cancer care is improving so much that patients that were dying, let me tell you the most lethal cancer is lung cancer. And now we have patients with a stage four lung cancer that are able to live longer. Yeah. Before they were dying in six months, now you have a, a stage four lung cancer, you know, four years out. And every month is a new treatment. So if you are becoming a physician to treat patients and to improve their health, this couldn't be the best time of the of your life to become a physician. Imagine in 1800, what the physician, if you can go in time and talk to a physician, you know, in 1800 and tell them what we are doing, they will could not believe it. If you to go back in time at 1800 and you tell them, hey, this is what I do every day. They say, Take hey, me. never mind 1800. What about 1980? Yes. Yes. So I mean, it's, it, it's a, I used to carry, when I was a house officer, an intern, I used to carry a book in my pocket called the British National Formulary, which was a list of every drug that you could get in Britain. Well, I couldn't carry it around now in a bloody wheelbarrow. There's so many. I agree with you. I agree with you. And, it's, and I have to say, it's such... It, it's so heartening to, to talk to someone like you, uh, Hugo, who, who has that, who has retained that enthusiasm. Because, yes, there's a lot of stuff that irritates us trying to practice uh, medicine in this era. I was just chatting with an orthopedic colleague and, you know, he has many frustrations, but also many joys about the, the privileged profession that we lead in. So I guess that that takes me to my last question. I love posing this to all my guests. If you had three wishes for the future of healthcare, what would they be? Technology, research, and decrease the cost of medicine. That's succinct. Um, and have to say, I, I agree with them. I, I'm afraid that's all we've got time for on this episode of the EMJ podcast, frankly. I'd love to chat for ages um, and I'd like to extend my sincere gratitude to you, Dr. Hugo Davila, for speaking about your work and all you're doing for patients. Hugo, it's been an absolute delight speaking to you. And uh, the next time I'm in Florida, maybe we can sit down for some empanadas, tajadas and a refreshing rum guarapita. And please forgive me if my pronunciation sucks. Not at all, Jonathan. You have a house in Vero Beach. When you come to Florida, please let me know and I will take care of you.
Thank you very much uh, for this kind invitation. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm planning on seeing you very, very soon. So, folks, if you've enjoyed this episode, please like us on social media. I'm told that's the thing I have to say. Tell your friends and tune in next week for another episode of the EMJ podcast with me, your host, Dr. Jonathan Sapia, as we explore the incredible world of, of life sciences and healthcare. But until next time, thanks for listening. Stay safe. Stay well, stay curious.